0: The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers strangers will will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit, inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning again, everyone. Can we take a moment to recognize Ben Poundstone's announcement Acumen. I mean, everywhere else it seems like announcements are such a drag. Um, but I actually look forward to your announcements, Ben, not because only because you're witty, but um, he is able to make it into like a moment of worship, almost a meditative moment um, that I look forward to. And his announcements and Scott's prayer really set up the sermon this morning and what we're talking about because often we are people of anger and fear. And worry and condescension and confusion. And if you're a Christian, you're called to be a person of hope. And our church is called to be a place of hope and a place of healing because of the people that reside here and because of God's presence. And that's what we're talking about this morning is core value number three. And we really. Don't want these to be just things that we paste on the wall or put on our website, but that we want these to actually be our operating principles, that which we live by, that which will never change. There's an aspirational aspect to this, that we want to be this place, but it's also something that we believe to be true about in town, that it is a place that heals with hope. And Jesus gave people hope that tomorrow doesn't have to be the same as today. He came to bring life, to renew His people and His world with the hope of new creation. InTown exists to enable and inspire people to live by and be changed by the radical hope of Jesus. Let's pray as we get started. Father, I pray that InTown, many years into the future, will be a place of healing, that when people connect with our church, that they would connect with hope and that we would be people of hope, and certainly we aspire to see that more in our individual lives, but would you accumulate the little bit of hope that we all manage to have in our lives and accumulate it here, aggregate it here so that your church would be a place of healing, that we would find our lives, find our future in the hope of the gospel. And we pray that you would guide us now as we reflect upon that. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about hope as one of our primary core values, and one of the most hopeless characters in all of uh, literature, film, TV has got to be George Costanza of Seinfeld. He is such a miserable person that when you watch him, you actually feel better about yourself because my life isn't that bad. And there's one episode where he talks about hope explicitly, and of course it has to do with his bad luck with women. And George says to Jerry, I mean, it's gotten to the point where I'm flirting with operators on the phone. I almost made a date with one. And Jerry says, so there's still hope. George, I don't want hope. Hope is killing me. My dream is to become hopeless. When you're hopeless, you don't care, and when you don't care, that indifference makes you attractive. (laughs) Jerry, so hopelessness is the key. George, it's my only hope. The New York Times did a fascinating article on Jerry, the real person, and the article was entitled, um, Jerry Seinfeld Intends to Die Standing Up. Of course, stand up is his job, and he intends to die doing it because, as he says in the article, there's always something missing. Can we be honest for a moment and say that we probably all understand that, that life feels like something is missing often? Often if not all the time, that at some level we're all looking for something more, hoping for something more, that we're living by some hoped-for future that really does illuminate and guide our everyday lives. But the Bible tells us, and this passage tells us, is that, that we have a problem because that we look for that hope, that we long for a hope for a future, that most of us are looking in the wrong place. And Isaiah gives us a number of images of those who have wrestled with this, with the hard realities of life, that real meaning, that security, that fulfillment, that hope is very difficult to find. And he writes this letter to people who grieve, people who are grieving in Zion to bestow upon them something different, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. So it's written to real people, to people like you and I. Now, what is this idea of this business of ashes? He is addressing this real sense of severe grief among his readers that life hasn't gone the way they expected, that their hopes have been severely dashed. Now, if you come here on Ash Wednesday, you come down front and I will put a a cross on your forehead out of ashes and say, from dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. It's not a very hopeful moment, but it's leading, of course, to the resurrection ultimately. But these ashes are a sign partially of repentance, but they're mostly a sign of mortality. And what are ashes? Ashes are that which is left over in a fire. Fire completely destroys the wood or the tree All of the potential energy in that wood has been used up, and what's left is ashes. Fire tears the wood apart at a molecular level, and that sunlight that was captured decades or maybe hundreds of years ago has been lying in that wood, and the fire pulls it out, and the only thing left is ashes. There's a sign of decay, of a body expending all of its energy to where it decomposes, decay, dis integrates. Now, the ancients, of course, didn't understand much about this molecular energy transfer, but they knew that ashes seem to be an apt picture of the human condition, that they're applied to all of us who are mortal. They're applied to all of us who are in mourning, whose lives are literally falling apart, whose bodies are in decay, decomposition, disdainment, Integration, And what the Bible tells us over and over is that no matter how industrious, no matter how wealthy, no matter how intelligent, no matter how hard we try, one day our bodies are going to literally fall apart and disintegrate. Integrate. So we are accurately marked by a cross of ashes, not by our degrees, not by our achievements, not by our job, by our money. Our spouse, but by our finitude, by our mortality. That even if we make it over the main hill of life, we get what we wanted, we think. It's still a race against the clock. We don't want our money to run out before we die. We don't want our spouse to depart before we do. We don't want our mental faculties to deteriorate before our body does. Even if we achieve all of our professional goals, life is still trying to beat us. And death most certainly will. It's something that we all have in common, whether we're Christians or not, is that the clock is going to run out on all of us. You came here for an inspirational speech this morning, right? That's what you were looking for. There's nothing we can do about it. And the person that puts ashes on their heads has come to the real realization that like everything else in the world, we are disintegrating. Anytime we put our hope on something or in something or in someone, in some organizing philosophy that originates within the system, it is ashes looking to ashes. It too is disintegrating. So that's the problem, first of all. The story gets better, so hang on. That's the problem, but there's also a solution, point two, that our only hope is something outside of the system, someone who is not falling apart, who is not disintegrating, whose life isn't determined by death, but who has in fact conquered death. Isaiah tells the readers, put ashes on your head, make acknowledgment, of your situation. You're in exile, in a hopeless situation. To those who recognize their desperate situation, to those who realize I can't work myself out of this conundrum, they received the promise. They received this hope. They received the promise of the Messiah that this leader, the leader, would come and make everything right, that he was the long-awaited hope of Israel. And he comes not to the optimistic, not to those who work the hardest, not to those whose lives are ostensibly all put together, but he comes to those whose lives are falling apart. He comes and he says that he proclaims good news to the poor, Whenever you read that in the Bible and the Gospels, it is the economically deprived, of course, but it's always a metaphor for something larger. Those who are deprived of hope, those who are deprived of essence, they're deprived of the resources of healing themselves and fixing what is broken in the world. The poor are those that look to the world and say, I can't fix this. I have to look somewhere else for hope. And he comes to provide for those who grieve over their situation, who mourn over the current state of affairs in their own lives and in the world. For Israel, it was that they were in exile, political exile. Those who are sad over the brokenness of the world and place no ultimate hope in it. He comes to bring them provision, comes to bring them a promise. And it's these people who live under this amazing image that their ashes are transformed into a crown of beauty. Instead of mourning, they get an oil of gladness. They become, as Isaiah says, oaks of righteousness that display God's splendor. What an amazing picture to think about yourself right now, if you're a part of InTown, and to think about InTown a gathering of oaks of righteousness, people who have been transformed and made into someone who can display the splendor of God. It's a beautiful image. He says, I will plant them. And this gets to begins to get to the solution. The Isaiah book of Isaiah is, first of all, a message of judgment. You have to get to judgment. You have to get to mourning in order to find salvation, in order to get the healing right he says that you've walked away from god your father who cares for you and look where it has led you political social spiritual exile and like slavery exile are the two dominant metaphors in the old testament of this spiritual displacement that we're disconnected with something essential to us that is our relationship with our creator So, Isaiah brings judgment, but he also brings great comfort because of the promise that God will remedy the situation, that He is a real hope, that He will rescue Israel from their political, social exile, but also their spiritual exile, their spiritual estrangement. And then one day, the story gets even better because He comes to make all things new, not just for Israel, but for all of creation. Now, Isaiah is a rather long book, 66 chapters. Did anyone take up my challenge eight or nine weeks ago to read it? No teacher's pets in here? Uh, Ben? Yeah, okay. It's long. Maybe next time we'll choose Jude or Philemon or something, and you guys can all raise your hands. But it's long. It's very long. Um, And it's a long description of the salvation that the Messiah will bring, the comfort of knowing that a leader is going to finally come one day that will set all things right. Most people think that it's actually three books or the work of three authors, Proto-Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, and Trito-Isaiah. Don't worry about that. I just have to justify my three years in seminary from time to time. has no bearing upon how you read the book because there is a unifying thread throughout Isaiah. Chapter 1, you get this announcement of judgment. You get an accusation that Israel, you have turned away, you've prostituted yourselves to other gods. And look where it's led you. You are outwardly religious, you bring the sacrifices, but you've forgotten what it means to truly live in relationship with God, your creator. And then you move to chapter 11, and you get this vision of this strong Davidic king. He will come to set things right, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. By his mighty hand, he will bring unity and peace. That's chapter 11. Then chapter 42, you get a different image. We see a new figure, not a king, but we see a servant. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations." He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. Very different, right, from this mighty warrior king that's coming. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles." You see, very different from this warrior king coming to subdue the nations and bring justice, but a figure of weakness and nearness, a servant. But this servant is given this royal anointing. And what Isaiah is telling us, this is something that's done only for a king, is that these two people are the same. The warrior king that brings justice and peace with a mighty hand is the same person who brings the nearness of God and the closeness of God. That is the servant. This anointed one, when we get to chapter 61 where we are this morning, it is this servant king who comes to release captives, to release the prisoners, to proclaim a day of vengeance, a reckoning for all of those who have harmed others, but also the comfort piece to bind up to bandage the the brokenhearted, to comfort those who mourn. He is the wonderful counselor and the mighty God. He is the lamb who is also the warrior king. He gives up this royal advantage so he can come to comfort the least in the kingdom. He defends the powerless by becoming powerless himself. He heals those with ashes on their heads by becoming ashes himself. Now, if if I've lost you in the problem and the solution, tune back in because there's a response here. And I want us all to listen to this. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And he's speaking here for that servant king, for the Messiah who will come. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom. For captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. Freedom is this very important Hebrew term, Duror, which means freedom for debts in the year of Jubilee. Jubilee was this year that Israel looked forward to every fifty years that came. And it was meant to. Uh, be a year that all debts were forgiven. All fields lied fallow for a year. All of the family land that had been lost was given back and returned to the original owners, and all indentured servants were released. That's Durore. That's freedom. That is the year of jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. So, if life had gone south for you or your family, your clan, if you had lost everything, there was still reason to hope, even if it wasn't for you, for your children, that they would reinherit in year 50 what you had lost. And Isaiah says that he, this warrior king, this Messiah, will come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Everything that that land, that that freedom, that that forgiveness of debts, that the fields, the crops lying fallow, everything that that pointed to is embodied in this person, is embodied in this servant king. And so fast forward, five to six hundred years later, after Isaiah is written to and given to Israel in exile, Israel has now returned to the land, but they're still in social, political, spiritual exile. And Jesus comes to Nazareth His hometown. Very first ministry event that Luke records in chapter 4, the Gospel of Luke. And he goes to the synagogue. This is the place where the faithful Jews were waiting on Messiah. And he goes to the synagogue. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me. He's taking on this servant king, personality, personage, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's a dispute There's not really much evidence that Israel ever fully instituted the Jubilee practice. And what he is saying today, or what he is saying is today it begins. Today, as he stands in front of them in the synagogue, the year of the Lord's favor has finally come. So even if you're struggling with belief, even if you're not yet ready to call yourself a Christian, you you have to admit, don't you, that this is... Quite a beautiful image. If this is God, wouldn't that be someone that we could think about serving? Wouldn't that be someone that we could think about giving our lives to? Someone who brings favor? Jesus added a couple of things there that weren't in Isaiah, but he also left something out. Did you notice? This is very important. The first time I noticed this, well, someone else helped me notice it. I'm not that good of a Bible student, but the first time I recognized this, it blew my mind. This idea of Jubilee is all throughout, throughout Luke's Gospel, so if you're struggling with some of the difficult images of God, some of the violence in the Old Testament, as you read that, go here, because something changes here. Isaiah says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vengeance of our Lord. That's Isaiah, but Jesus says a little bit something different. He cuts off the reading right in the middle. He's basically saying, I'm not going to read something that all of you people gathered here today know comes next, and it's going to make you uncomfortable. Those who know the text are going to be agitated. This is so big. It's informative of how we see God reaching out to us, because is it out of favor or is it out of vengeance? Does God come in love or does he come in wrath? You see, Jesus leaves off right in the middle of the sentence. He proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, and then he leaves off the day of vengeance. Judgment will come, and Jesus is very clear about this. And in fact, if you think about it, judgment is part of the hope because our longing for justice, our longing for wrongs to be righted, that's the day of vengeance, and it's very important. Justice will roll down, and wrongs will be adjudicated, But to the faithful, you see, it will feel like a day, whereas mercy and favor will feel like a year. The contrast when God finally comes will be so enormous. There will be vengeance, but Jesus says it will feel short for the faithful. It will feel like a day, but mercy and favor will last forever. In the year of the Jubilee, the king comes and he pays off the debts of all the servants all of the indentured servants all of those who need comfort all of those who mourn all of those who are in exile all of those who have ashes on their heads will receive the oil of gladness from messiah from god himself so how do we respond well for some of us it may need mean that we need to take jesus up on his offer for the very first time we need to see, say yes I need that. I need hope. Jesus, can you bring that jubilee into my life personally? Whatever your story, no matter how crooked and twisted your journey has become, he can bring that oil of gladness into your life. Jesus comes to offer the favor of the Lord, the mercy of the Lord. And so part of our response is to take hold of that personally, individually, but also for the church is to follow Him into that jubilee principle, into that mentality where fear and anxiety and worry are displaced by hope. We are to respond by following Him and forgiving people's debts, being radically generous with our comforts, putting our own comfort in jeopardy so that others can be comforted. The church is to be a place of Gather a gathering of individuals who are all doing that in their individual lives, and this is the place where it happens in the most pristine way because it's gathered together. The church is to be a place of jubilee, a place of healing people with hope, of pointing them away from all of the sorrow and the mourning, giving recognition to it. It doesn't make it disappear, but it points to something beyond. To seek, in other words, to make true what will be true. That was the point of Isaiah's letter. There is a coming day where this will be true, begin to make it true now. And the church is seeking to look into the future and to make true what will be true. The church isn't, friends, the world's moral policeman. And it's not a club where you get to belong and get all the benefits. The church is a place that is seeking to be the suffering servant on behalf of one another and on behalf of the world. To bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort the poor, to release captives, metaphorically and really, as a sign that there's a reason to hope that all of these practices will one day become fully realized in the person of Jesus. That Jesus Himself has entered into our suffering with a message of hope. And so therefore the church says tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. No matter how crooked and broken your journey is, no matter if you are in a place of great mourning, there's reason the hope that tomorrow can be different. That longing that all of us have for ultimate completion, that feeling in your gut that something is wrong with this world is a healthy thing. It's ashes that lead to healing, and to cleansing. That longing for hope is meant to be placed upon the person of God in whom you are made in their image, the God of Jubilee, the God who brings favor, the God who is in fact making all things new, not just your own individual story. And so In Town is called to heal with hope that Jesus gave people hope, that tomorrow doesn't have to be the same as today. He came to bring life and to renew His people and His world with the hope of new creation. In town exists to inspire people to live by and be changed by the radical hope of Jesus. Let's pray that that would be true. God, our world needs hope, and we need hope. We look upon our world and see all of the brokenness, but we don't have to look very far because our lives are broken and we are in need. Father, help us to see the ashes on our forehead. Help us to see our finitude and to not try to pretend. Not try to live out of that, apart from that reality, but to live into it in hopes that there is only, only in seeing Our finitude, only in seeing our mortality, only in seeing our sin can we find your healing. Lord, would you bring it and would you distribute it through this church to others? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.